Right, we are in the second of a seven-week series looking at the church and doing that through the grid of uh, the seven churches at the beginning of uh, of the letter, the vision of Revelation, which Jesus speaks to John. And we're using this series to help us to recalibrate and refocus and restart and all those other rewords as we get going with the new term, a new season. Everything feels a bit fresh coming out of the pandemic, hopefully. No more lockdowns, please, Lord. And uh, as kids are back at school, and of course the sun has come out as a consequence of the kids being back at school and university students coming back, this is a time for us to kind of really think again about what it is to be church and what it means to be part of church. Um, We, as elders, were going through the church membership list the other day, which we often do as part of our kind of pastoral care for people, and also thinking about all those who've been around over the last 18 months who uh, have not yet come into membership because we have just haven't been doing that kind of thing. So we reckon there are about 50 people who probably should come into membership straight away. On the uh, 9th of October, we're going to have a, a short kind of two, three-hour session Saturday morning to talk about what it means to be part of Gateway Church, and we'd love to welcome a whole load of people in, into membership. So if you want to explore what membership is, maybe you've been here for the last 18 months and you think you're a member already, but you've never been publicly welcomed, well, uh, we'd love to talk with you and, and make that happen and see a whole bunch of people come into, into membership. Now, these, these letters in the book of Revelation are to actual churches in real places, just like us here at Gateway Church. And today we're going to think about churches in two cities, Smyrna and Philadelphia. And these are two churches which are faithful to Jesus. And that's the theme of this morning's message, faithfulness, faithful churches. We're going to read from Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8. If you've got one of these church Bibles, we need to get these out again. Oh, they're over there. Page 1234. I just wanted to say that because it's so satisfying. It's like the, it's like the passcode on your computer, I know. 1234. Uh, Revelation 2, verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna writes, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. It's a church in Smyrna, and then over to chapter 3, and the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, but you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will I leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says 
to the churches. Lord, let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Of the seven churches that Jesus addresses in this vision, in this revelation to John, these are the only two which don't get any kind of rebuke. The others are commended for things, but also rebuked for things. Only the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia receive no rebuke. So what we can learn from these two churches is about faithfulness. And faithfulness is important, significant, has all kinds of impacts. This Friday just gone was the 28th anniversary of the day on which I asked Grace to marry me. And, um, ah, thank you. I know, how could I, I must have been so young, I was, I think I was about, I was about six at the time. But we, faithfulness has done us good. Faithfulness has been a good story for us. And faithfulness produces good stories. Faithfulness is its own reward. But I also know, because I know you, lots of you, and just know how the world is, for lots of us, that's not the story. And actually, for all of us, it's not the story in every area of our lives. And I know for many of you here, you, faithfulness actually is probably a painful subject, either because you are a victim of unfaithfulness in some way, and it might be that even now, even as I'm speaking, this is very raw and painful for you, that you have, somebody, has not, somebody who should have been faithful to you has not been. And that's profoundly, can be destroying, devastating. And there are also people here who have not been faithful as they should have been, whether it's in a relationship or whatever else it might be, and you kind of reap the rewards of that in some way, the penalties of that. And of course, our, our whole way our society operates now trains us not to be faithful. Our cultural conditioning is to be consumers. And one of the things we believe about what it is to be a Christian, a disciple, is that we are no longer consumers, but we are made servants, and that's a better more fruitful way to live, but what our t- culture teaches us is to be consumers, to shop around. And shopping around, in the end, ends up with, well, not being faithful to anything. And that becomes destructive. And so there are things here for us to think about, things for all of us, individually, to think about. But, of course, there are things for us all, corporately, to think about. And whether we're believers and part of this church, and we're thinking about what it means corporately to be faithful, or whether you're not yet a follower of Jesus and exploring whatever your situation in life, whether you've been a victim of unfaithfulness or whether you yourself have perpetrated unfaithfulness, there's stuff here for us to learn from and to receive and find God's grace in. So Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I pray for any here this morning for whom even talking about this is painful, kind of opens the wounds and pours salt on. I pray that your mercy, your tenderness would come near to people and help and support and lift up and Lord if there's people on the other side of the page those who actually need to repent of a lack of faithfulness I pray that in your mercy you would draw that from us as well and that we would be a people who know what faithfulness is and build in faithful ways and see the the good of that in this church and in our community in your name I ask it Lord Amen. Amen. Something else I want to do as we go through is especially for the Bible scholars, the Bible geeks, is to pick out some Old Testament references. Those of you who were here last week, I said that to understand Revelation, you really need to understand Old Testament prophecy. And there are some references in the things I've read, which you're only really going to get if you know Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. So we'll be picking, on those, picking up on those as we go. Right, first thing, what we know about these cities, there should be a map 
showed you last week, of where Smyrna and Philadelphia were. Smyrna, about 35 miles north of Ephesus. It's the only, of the, only one of the seven cities which still exists today. Today it's known as Izmir. Anybody been to Izmir? Wow, nobody. There are a few up Alder Road. Uh, there's a picture of Izmir. Looks like quite, quite a nice place still, a big city still. Uh, at the time of this revelation, there were 200,000 people in Smyrna, which by ancient standards is huge. The cities weren't that big. They were even important cities were smaller than that. This was a massive city. Had the largest theater in the province of Asia. Homer was born there. It was a sophisticated and a beautiful place, a very cultured place. Second city was Philadelphia. And Philadelphia occupied a strategic position at the top of a valley, a valley which actually led down to Smyrna. It controlled all kinds of trade routes, so it was very important commercially. And it was also famous for its temples and its religious festivals. There's a picture of Philadelphia. It doesn't look quite so up together now. A bit more ruins, but it had loads of temples, and it was famous for religious festivals, celebrations, all that kind of side of life. It was a festival city. That's what we know about these cities. More importantly, what do we learn about Jesus? Revelation is a vision revealed by Jesus to John, and Jesus speaks of himself throughout this vision, and he makes claims about himself which needs to be considered. On the if God, then what course, we will be considering some of those claims. That's what it's about. And Jesus, in the letters I've read, makes some claims which are important ones. He claims that he is the first and the last. That is, he claims eternal existence. In our thinking about the age of the universe and the infinite reaches of space, what Christ claims is that he transcends them all. That however mind-blowing and mind-boggling the vastness of space might be and the length of human history and the age of the universe, billions of years beyond that, Jesus says, well, I was there before that and I'll be there after it. I transcend the whole thing. That's a claim that Christ makes, that he has eternal existence. Jesus claims that he was the one who died and is now alive. He has overcome the defining barrier of human existence. Every single human being has two experiences which cannot be avoided. The first is to be born, and the second is to die. Jesus was born, and he died, but he says he is now alive. And the Christian hope and the resurrection, the resurrection of Christ, and what that means for us, that we who trust in him will live with him, is absolutely central and essential to the Christian faith. It's a claim that Jesus makes. It's a claim you need to respond to if you're going to put your trust in him. Jesus claims to be the one who is holy and true. This is a title of divinity. Jesus is saying that he is God, and he is also claiming that he is the ultimate standard. I am holy and true. I am the standard by which all other standards have to be measured. And everyone has a standard. Everyone has a moral grid by which they decide how they're going to live in life. Just as I came in, I witnessed a fight out on the street. A motorcyclist had cut up a car, and the guy in the car got up and pulled the guy off his motorbike and had a punch up. It was quite... Well, anyway, there's a fight. Uh, the guy who did that had a moral grid. Might not be the same as yours, but he's got one. Everybody does. Jesus says, I am holy and true. That is the standard. Everything else, everybody else's standard, Nathan. I'm not the kind of person who pulls somebody off their motorbike and starts a fight. My standard is better. Still not the standard of Jesus. 
He's the one who's holy and true. Jesus says that he's the one who holds the key. This means that he has total authority over the house. Ever had the experience where you leave the house without your keys? And that moment of panic, and if nobody else is around, nobody else lives in, who lives in the house is there, what do you do? How do you get back in? You feel you've got authority. It's my house, but I can't get into the thing. Suddenly realize your authority is much diminished. Am I going to have to spend 200 quid to pay for a locksmith to come and let me back into my own house? Jesus says he holds the key. That means he has all authority over the house of God. Now, here's the first Old Testament prophetic reference, Isaiah 22, 22. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. In that prophecy there, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah and speaking about a man, Eliakim, who's going to have authority over the house of David, authority over the kingdom. Jesus then quotes that here in Revelation, says, look, I'm the one now who holds the key of David. What does that mean? It means that he has all authority over access to the heavenly kingdom. If you want to get to God, if you want to get in the house, the only way is by Jesus, the one who holds the key. It's the claim of Christ. So if you're a Christian, remember who Jesus is and remember what that means for you. He is first and last. He died and he's alive. He's holy and true. He holds the key. Remember who he is. And if you're seeking in some way after God, these are the claims which you need to explore and wrestle with about Jesus Christ. Next thing is what we learn about these churches. Firstly, the church in Smyrna. Jesus tells us that they're afflicted and poor, yet rich. And what we see here is that wealth is measured in different terms in the kingdom of God from how we humanly so often tragically measure wealth. Emma Raducanu, amazing victory last night. Did I read this right, that the prize of 1.8 million? 2.5 million dollars, 1.8 million pounds. Come on, we're British. <laughs> Keep up. 1.8 million pounds. Pay for our whole building project, just winning a game of tennis. What is Emma, Emma Raducanu worth? Millions. 1.8 million. That's nothing compared with the millions that she's now going to get through sponsorship and advertising and everything else. She is worth millions. But of course, that is not Emma Raducanu. That is a terrible way. It's a terrible phrase, isn't it? What are they worth? To measure somebody according to the amount of cash is just a, it's actually a pretty despicable way to measure somebody. <laughs> And that's not how the Lord measures wealth. He says to the church in Smyrna, you're poor and afflicted, but you're rich. Why are they rich? Because they know him who is first and last. They know him who died and now lives. They know him who is holy and true. They know him who holds the key. True riches is knowing Jesus. And so they're rich. And Jesus warns them that they're going to suffer, even to some of them even to the point of death. And... Uh, Smyrna was an exceptionally Roman city. It was exceptionally loyal to the kind of the Roman cult. And uh, that meant this was a dangerous place for Christians who did not join in the worship of Caesar. It's hard to be a Christian there. And one of the most famous stories of early Christian martyrdom took place in Smyrna, the martyrdom of Polycarp, which happened just a few decades after the Lord gave this vision to John. There's an account of it. Let me, let me read some of that account. 
says this, as Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, down with the atheists. At that time, if you were a Christian, if you worshipped Jesus, you were considered an atheist. A bit different now. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and gesturing towards them, he said, down with the atheists. Swear, urged the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And here's the famous, in church history, eternal, fa eternally famous statement of Polycarp. 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? And then the proconsul ordered that Polycarp be burnt at the stake. Now, this is why Jesus reminds this church that he has triumphed over death. He's the one who died and now lives. Some people in this city, members of Christ's church, are going to die for Christ, but they, like Christ, will then live. I died, but I'm alive. And this is a story that is repeated, has been repeated countless times through the ages, a story of faithfulness. Men and women, countless numbers of them who have counted faithfulness to Jesus more precious than life itself in the hope that they will receive life in Jesus forever. And Jesus knows what they're going to experience. He knows that they are afflicted and poor, this was a context where it was hard for Christians to make a living. They were being deliberately, intentionally shut out of the economic life of the city. And so Jesus says to them, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer for 10 days. You're going to be tested for 10 days. Now, what does that mean? The book of Revelation is full of numbers, which can be confusing. 10 days speaks, firstly, about a, a season which is prolonged but limited. It's going to be 10 days. It's not going to be forever. It's a season which is going to be extended, but not forever. And it also refers to the prophecy of Daniel. This is our second one for the Bible geeks to tick off their list. Daniel chapter 1. We read about Daniel and some of his friends taken captive from Jerusalem, taken to Babylon, and chosen to serve the king and tested. And Daniel says, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he greets this and tests them for 10 days. That's what's being referenced there in Revelation. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. Now that story about Daniel and his friends is not a story about whether veganism is more healthy than uh, omnivorism. What it is about is about worship and idolatry. That somehow for Daniel and his friends to participate in what they were meant to in terms of the rituals and the food they were meant to eat and the stuff they were meant to drink and all the rest of the stuff would somehow have involved them in idolatry of not worshipping the true God but being caught up in the worship of the Babylonian gods. And so Daniel and his friends say, please keep us from that, test us and let us see if our God proves faithful to us as we're faithful to him. And, and this, of course, is about the limits of civil obedience. There's a line which can't be crossed in terms of worship of God. It's a choice, 
Am I going to do this, something which would compromise and cause me to become an idolater? Or do, am I prepared to pay the price, risk the consequences, and stay true in my worship of the Lord? And Daniel and his friends choose to stay true in their worship of the Lord, and they pass the test. They're not idolaters, they're worshippers. That's the church in Smyrna. church in Philadelphia is weak, but faithful. They're small, small in number. They're insignificant in worldly terms, but they receive special commendation from the Lord. And again, there's so much we can learn from that. The, this church doesn't look impressive. Actually, neither church looks impressive. In the cities they're in, they don't stand out as impressive. There's nothing impressive in worldly terms about these people, about these churches. And Jesus says, look, I know you're weak. I know you haven't got much strength. And yet he commends them for their faithful belief. And he says, there's an open door. There's a door being opened for you. And when the New Testament talks about a door being opened, that's normally referring to a door for witness, for mission, for ministry. And Philadelphia is a gateway city. It's at the top of a valley. And the Lord says, I'm going to open the gate for you, for effective mission in this city. And actually, those who are now accusing you are going to come and fall on their knees in front of you. They're going to repent and believe themselves because they're going to see my love for my church. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, is going to see the love of Christ for his church. A door is going to be opened. A gateway is going to be opened. Now, of course, there's a relevance to us. Our name as a church is Gateway. We believe the Lord has opened doors for us in terms of mission and ministry and witness. That's what we're called to. That's what we're called to in BCP. Not to be worldly, but to be witnesses to Jesus in this place. Now, there's something which is just worth picking up in both letters to these churches, which might have troubled you as we read it. And that's where Jesus talks about a synagogue of Satan and those who claim to be Jews but aren't Jews who are opposing the Christians. And uh, when we read something like that, we do have to be very careful, because, especially because of the experiences of the past century and actually because of, tragically, what has happened throughout the centuries when often those who have claimed to be Christians have persecuted the Jewish people. And so we can read verses like this, and it can cause us to be troubled. Now, there mustn't be even a hint of anti-Semitism amongst us. So what does Jesus mean here? We need to understand the context, and we need to understand, again, the prophetic imagery of Revelation. And the context seems to have been that in the cities of Smyrna and Philadelphia, there were significant Jewish populations, and some of those Jewish people were stirring up trouble against the Christians. The Christians were regarded as a kind of a Jewish sect. And other Jews were not happy about this, and wasn't difficult to stir up trouble with the Roman authorities against the Christians. The Christians at this point in time are not the dominant group. They're small, they're weak, they're vulnerable. And um, Jesus says that those who claim to be Jews but are persecuting my people, they're not, they're not true Jews. The Apostle Paul in the letter to the Romans says something similar. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people but from God. The Apostle Paul, a Jew, a Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees, he says, How, who is a true Jew? A true Jew is one who recognizes God's Messiah. 
And those who are ethnically Jewish are denying their heritage of the people of God by persecuting those who are following God's Messiah, Jesus. And the Lord says to them, don't worry. The door of the synagogue might have been close to you, but I'm opening the door to my kingdom for you. Churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia were hard-pressed in every sense, on every side, and yet remained faithful. So what does faithfulness result in? If faithfulness is costly, you want to know it's worth paying the price. And the reality is that faithfulness does cost. If you're going to be faithful, if you're going to be faithful in a relationship, if you're going to be faithful at work, if you're going to be faithful to some community group that you've joined, or faithful in your neighborhood, faithfulness is always costly because it means routinely submitting and sacrificing our own preferences and desires and comforts for the sake of others. That's, that's what it means to be faithful, that you don't always do what you want to do. You choose to bless and serve other people ahead of yourself. That's what faithfulness involves, and that requires real maturity. It cuts so strongly against the cultural grain where we are trained to be consumers and to shop around and serve ourselves, and faithfulness is very different from that. It's costly. So, If it's costly, what's the reward? If you're going to pay the cost for faithfulness, what are you going to get in return? Jesus describes some of the things these churches are going to receive. He says to the church in Smyrna, they're going to receive a victor's crown. And at first reading, that might not seem a particularly fair trade. The imagery, of course, is the games where the victors would have got a crown of leaves. And so Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna, you're poor and afflicted and some of you are going to die, but don't worry, you're going to get some leaves. (laughs) And that doesn't seem very fair. Of course, again, we need to see the symbolism. That what is being represented here is glory and honor. Immortality. Emma Raducanu is now millions of pounds and dollars richer than she was yesterday. But actually, the main thing is the honor, the glory, isn't it? That's what's been said about her. She has done what nobody else has done for however many years it is, an extraordinary achievement. And what might she do in the future? There's suddenly, her name is in lights. She is famous. She is receiving all kinds of honor and adulation over and above the cash. And Jesus says, you're going to receive a victor's crown. Actually, life, you're going to receive life as your victor's crown. Church of Smyrna, poor, afflicted, some of you are even going to die for me, but you're going to receive life as your victor's crown. And so he says you'll receive victory in the second death. What's that about? Well, there is a judgment that awaits each one of us. This world makes judgments about us all the time. There's a more important verdict to come, the verdict of the Lord. And Jesus says, if you're faithful, you've got no worries about what that verdict is going to be. You're going to be welcomed to open arms into my Father's presence, into the kingdom of God. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, if you're faithful, you're going to be like pillars in the temple. Again, this is about honor. It's about esteem. It's about prestige. It's a pillar in the house of God. It's about strength and reputation. It's what holds the whole thing up in this building. Of course, we have literal pillars here without which the roof would collapse. The pillars are what keep the thing going. And we have spiritual pillars in this church, people in this room. You are pillars who are immovable, reliable, constant, 
other people kind of rely on. You hold stuff up. You hold it together because you are faithful people, pillars. And Jesus says, look, if you're faithful now, that's how you're going to be in my Father's house in the temple of God. You're going to have that kind of honor, esteem, position, privilege. And he says, I'm going to give you a new name. We might say, well, I'm quite happy with my name as it is. It's not what it's about. Again, it's about honor and recognition and belonging. And here's the last of our Old Testament prophetic references, which are being referred to here in Revelation. Fill out the picture. Ezekiel 48, 35, the last verse in the prophecy of Ezekiel. If you've been doing community Bible reading and reading Ezekiel, you've been thoroughly confused for the last week, I'm sure. The last eight chapters of Ezekiel are all about temple measurements and a river and all kinds of stuff. And you're thinking, what is this about? What it's about is that God is preparing a place for his people of perfect beauty and harmony and pure worship and security. He's preparing that place for his people. Heaven comes to earth. And the very last verse in Ezekiel and what Jesus refers to here in Revelation is that the name of the city from that time on will be the Lord is there. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, that's the name you're going to have. You're going to be identified as belonging to the Lord. That's who you are. And that also helps us, just a little bit of a sidebar, this helps us to understand what is probably the most notorious passage in the book of Revelation, which is that in chapter 13 about the mark of the beast, about which countless hours of vain speculation have been spent. Actually, it's relatively straightforward. Revelation 13, there are those who are marked with the mark of the beast. Revelation 14, there are those who are marked with the name of God. The choice is to be made. Everyone is marked. Everyone has a name. Some are marked with the name of God. Others are marked with the name of the beast. Some are worldly. Some are witnesses. Some are faithless. Some are faithful. Some are idolaters. Others are worshippers. There's a choice. Which camp are you going to be in? And the Christians at Smyrna and Philadelphia had made their choice. They'd chosen faithfulness. They'd chosen Jesus. They're going to have a new name. The Lord is there they're going to receive their reward for their faithfulness. So lastly, what is it that we need to apply? Jesus says to both churches, says it to all the churches, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we need those ears. What Jesus says to these churches, he says to us as well. And one thing we need to hear is Jesus says to them, do not be afraid the most frequent command in the whole of the Bible, do not be afraid. Sometimes people can read even the book of Revelation and be rather afraid by what they read. We're not meant to be scared by Revelation, we're meant to be emboldened. The whole point is that Jesus wins, that he's the one who died and now lives. He's the one who's holy and true, he's the one who's first and last, he's the one who holds the key. And so in response, we are called to be faithful. Don't be afraid. Be faithful in this world with all its pressures. In Smyrna, in Philadelphia, in BCP. Don't be afraid, but be faithful to Jesus. He'll carry you through. And we want to share in all that Christ is and all that he offers to us. We want to share in his victory to receive from him life and crowns and pillars and new names and all that which comes through faithfulness. And we want to see the rewards of faithfulness in our experience 
now in the kind of community that we are as Gateway Church, that we're faithful towards Jesus and faithful towards one another, and that produces a life and a health amongst us. And that spills out into our neighborhoods, into our town, that BCP is actually affected by the faithfulness of God's people, that our city in some way might be redeemed, that the Lord would open a door as he did in Philadelphia, that those who at the moment would mock and oppose would fall on their knees because they see themselves the love of Jesus for his church. That's what faithfulness produces. That's what I want for us. That's what Jesus wants for us. The fruit of faithfulness. And you know, as we read about these churches, what we see is there's, there's nothing here which is flashy. There's nothing which is externally impressive. There is nothing which stood out about these churches in the eyes of the world. They were, in the eyes of the world, small, insignificant, unimportant. But they were precious to God. And we can have that confidence too. That Gateway Church is precious to Jesus. He's faithful to us. We're to be faithful to him. And we will receive our rewards.